welcome to the Helping Families Be Happy podcast, where we explore the often messy world of family, love, and relationships. I'm your host for this podcast, Christopher Robbins, husband, father of nine, founder of Familias, fly fisherman, and outdoor enthusiast living in the beautiful California Central Valley. For the video of this podcast, please view it on the Familias YouTube channel. Now, we welcome today's guest, Sarah Smith. Sarah is the district librarian in California Central Valley. Previously, she was a high school teacher, librarian, and a high school English teacher. She also professionally reviews manga and graphic novels for Booklist and School Library Journal. She has written articles for California English, Diamond Bookshelf, and Booklist. She has also appeared on a podcast guest on School Librarians United and The Literacy Advocate. Sarah has enjoyed tutoring the country as a speaker at conferences such as the American Library Association's Annual Conference, American Associations of School Librarians Annual Conference, and the School Library Journal Summit. When not surrounded by books, Sarah enjoys the company of her partner, her two cats, and her succulent garden. Today, we're talking about books and the current book banning trend within the United States. This podcast aligns with the familiar habit learn together, talk together, and read together. You can learn more about the Familias 10 Habits of Happy Families by going to the Habit Hub blog on Familias.com. Now, Sarah, what a great bio. You have a lot of experience, so thank you for joining us. Yeah, happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, there is a lot going on in book banning and I'd say censorship right now in the United States. Yep. More- more than ever before. So let me give just a, a quick thought on that, and then we'll begin. So I want to provide some context for our listeners. And this includes those interested in protecting our right to read, as well as parents interested in helping their children avoid content that a parent might find objectionable. We can respectfully provide for both interests. So through August of 2023, there were nearly 4,000 individual titles challenged in school and public libraries. These challenges can result in a title being retained, restricted, or revoked, as I understand it. Mm-hmm. This is a substantial increase over 2022 and represents a unique strategy in that for the first time, the majority of challenges include multiple titles rather than just one title. Historically, some books that have been challenged and which many of our listeners may have read include The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, A Farewell to Arms, Of Mice and Men, The Grapes of Wrath, The Catcher in the Rye, To Kill a Markenbird, 1984, Harry Potter, The Great Gatsby. But recently, books that are being targeted are more often on topics of race or LGBTQ issues. Book banning has been used to control a society's narrative, in my opinion, and can marginalize groups of people. When a society marginalizes a group of people and begins to consider them as I've stated in other podcasts, as, quote, the other, unquote, society can begin to dehumanize them. The most famous example is, of course, the Nazi book burnings of the 1930s, which was fictionalized in Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. What started as a controlled narrative in Nazi Germany eventually turned to mass genocide. Familius's mission is to help families be happy, and we believe that while parents have a responsibility and the right to influence what their children read. Book banning and censorship is not consistent with our mission and does not lead to a healthy or even happy society or families. So let's explore what is happening, what parents should know, 
and even how a parent could help influence their child's access to content. So Sarah, those are my opinions, of course, and some information, but help us understand from your point of view, what is happening today? So really this has become, libraries have become kind of a big, a big chip in a broader culture war, I feel. There's, it's a, uh, it's a piece that people have been using to kind of target public education as a whole. And we're, we're a pawn. So there's been, especially since the pandemic, I think that when schools were in the home, you know, parents got to see a little bit more what was happening. And I don't know, maybe they didn't agree with everything that was happening or decided that this was the perfect launching point for making that culture war against schools. They decided to, there was some groups that decided this was the perfect time to go against books and go against um, public education. So this became a political tool for especially these these big conservative extremist groups, I guess you would say. So there's one group in particular that has been kind of fueling a lot of the book banning. And there was a study that was done recently that found that most of the banning, those 4,000 books that you were talking about in your intro, it has boiled down to about 12 people across the nation have been fueling all of the book challenges. And so it's it's kind of overwhelming to think that it comes down to only a couple of people. This vocal minority has been fueling this and it feels like this overwhelming giant force, but really it's kind of a small piece. Mm. And it's not, it's not that, you know, this giant group is coming after us and coming after the books. It's kind of a small thing, but it feels large. So I am not against parents being involved in their children's education, and I'm not against parents understanding what their kids are reading. I am against this movement to use books and to use libraries as a tool and a talking point for people in a culture war. Hmm. And I think that's kind of what's happening. Okay, a culture war. Mm -hmm. And it's probably culture wars have existed for, for centuries, for thousands of years. now. I, I might be in a unique position because my wife, we have nine children. My wife has homeschooled our children until usually they reach at least junior high. More often, they then go to public high school. So all of our children have graduated from a public high school or, and have gone to, many have gone to a public junior high. So we, we have lived in both worlds and actually do live, currently live in both worlds. And we find that the great value, there's such great value in finding great teachers and having programs that really help them develop socially and, and intellectually and physically and emotionally. And as familiar as believes, the most important work we'll ever do will be within the walls of our own home. So we feel that parents have such a strong responsibility to really help their children and that everything that, that the community does is to help add to what we're already doing. So a parent might be concerned. So help us understand that if a parent is concerned about a, the content that a child might be reading at school or might be bringing home from the school library, is there a process for them to deal with that? Yeah, so most districts, not all. I cannot speak for the, the wider nation. There, as this has become part of a problem with book challenges, it's come up that not everyone has a standard process, but in our district we do. And in a lot of districts in California, they do. 
but in other states, they don't. <laughs> so some districts have a standard policy where there is a process to be able to, to recommend a book to be removed or reconsidered. So it's a reconsideration policy. You can ask for a book or you can ask for a conversation. You can ask for a book to be reviewed because it is impossible for the library staff to read every single book that comes into the library. So when we purchase books, we rely on other tools and resources to help us uh, make sure that the books that are coming in are appropriate for the age group that we are selecting for. So it is possible that there are books that come in that have been recommended to us that for our communities, like obviously in California, people think, sorry, I'm on a tangent, but in California, people think like California is just a hundred percent completely liberal state, right? Like it's, it's all blue, the whole thing. But when you get down to the nitty gritty of it and you look at the different counties, like there are portions of California that are very conservative. And so you can't just paint a whole state with this huge swath brush, right? You can't just say that every county, every school, every district, every book is going to be appropriate. Like even in our area in the Central Valley, I wouldn't select the same books here that would be appropriate for San Francisco. So you can't just say like, this book is going to be okay for every K-6 class or every K-6 library. So that happens where something's recommended for a K-6 and it gets to you. And it probably isn't the most appropriate for your particular library. So if that happens, if that book is not okay for your area, for your community, then the parent can recommend that it's been, that it can be reconsidered, that um, comes together. There's usually a committee of uh, parents, students, administrators, teachers that will read the book, discuss it talk about whether it should be removed or not. And they make a decision, they make a recommendation to the either the superintendent or the school board, and then they decide whether they're going to go with that decision or not. And the book stays or the book is removed. And so it's usually like people that are removed from the situation that are not as emotional about it. You know, they don't want, you don't put the parent on there that is trying to protect their child. You don't put the library staff person that's trying to protect their book, you try and remove the situation or remove people from the situation and try and come at it with a level head and say, we're just, we're trying to not only protect our students and protect our um, staff people, but like come at it objectively and say, is this something that is okay for our community? And if it is, the book stays. If it's not, the book is removed. But it's more, we're trying to be fair about it and not like point fingers and not, you know, have it be a shouting match at a school board, not like blast people on social media and put their faces all over the place. And, you know, I've just seen some really like horrible things going around on all the social medias about just throwing like names about this is child pornography and you want to do this and that. And, you know, that's not what we're in the game for. Like, I didn't go to college and get a master's so that I could push child pornography. You know, I, I went to school and I did all this work so that I could make kids love reading and have a better life because they're readers. Right. So it sounds like there's a <laughs> objective criteria mm-hmm. in terms of submitting for a parent submitting content they might find questionable. 
Mm-hmm. And there's a, a way to that for the school district to invite community members, even students and administration to participate in a council and mm-hmm. whether that book does meet or does not meet a community standards, which can be subjective based on where you one lives. Yes. And sorry, generally that committee is set before the challenge happens. Like we have a, a review committee in this district. We have a review committee right now, regardless of like, I don't do the committee, you know, after the challenge happens when you're like, oh, scrambling, suddenly we need to find volunteers that would be willing to review this book. So that's helpful. Now, I guess I have a question. I'm a parent and it seems to me that I could object to content that my child is consuming or that's mm-hmm. given to him by the school. What if I'm not a parent of a child in that school? Do I have a role to play or, or is that outside the, the guardrails of, of what the school is set up? For our district, that's outside the parameters. So you do have to be a parent of someone going to that school. Okay, or a guardian? Or a guardian, yes. Okay, so so again, as, as I'm understanding, is different districts are going to have different policies. Different mm-hmm. states will have different policies. It's important for a parent to be able to, and where would a parent go to find out whether the school has a policy and what the policy is? Usually these are going to be in their board policies, which are on the school's websites. Mm-hmm. So in California, all of the school board policies are similarly numbered. So ours are under the instruction standards. So this is going to be in the 6,000s. So they're numbered in 6,000s area. You have to find where those are on your schools or on your district school board policy. So it's in the in the instructions 6,000s. In other states, I have no idea, <laughs> but it should be on their school board stuff. Right. But wherever one lives, mm-hmm. a parent has an opportunity to go to that school, go to the administration, go to the school librarian, and simply ask, what is your policy? Mm-hmm. And if I understand correctly, no parent should be turned away without a good understanding of what the policy is or if they do or do not have one, correct? That's what I would hope. Like, I can't speak for every school and how they operate, but I was also always taught that you catch more flies with honey. And so I know that this can be an emotional thing when you're trying to protect your child. So I know that oftentimes parents go to schools and or contact administration and they can be upset and they get the runaround or they get turned around and they get they don't get straight answers. And so if I would suggest trying to be as civil and cordial as possible when trying to find this information because you're probably going to be more successful than I just I see it too much when I'm I'm consuming far too much of this stuff on social media. But just people are irate and I get it. I really do. I understand that this is really difficult and it can be really upsetting, but you're going to get more information out of people if you're not coming at them really like crazy. <laughs> sure. sure. And it is, and it can, so many things, whether it's politics, whether it's this, it can be religion, it can be emotional. So the principle we always talk about here is, is we can disagree, but let's mm-hmm. not be disagreeable. Mm-hmm. Great advice. Sarah, let's, if we, if a parent has, if the parent is listening and you have concerns, you know, go to, we're dealing with people. And mm-hmm. let's let's treat them respectfully and let's just simply find out and let's follow those policies and let's make sure not to shame people. Let's find yeah, a way to find common denominators. And assume good intentions. Yeah. You know, I don't think 
people put those things in there, you know, trying to harm your child, you know, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't choose this book thinking like, oh, good, <laughs> you know, this child is going to be scarred for life. Yay. You know, I didn't do that. Right. Uh, <laughs> you got into this job because you want children to learn to read, that reading opens up the world to them. Okay. So we've talked a little bit about uh, what a parent's, uh, parents' rights are and that they have the opportunity to influence what their children read. And that's wonderful. And we've experienced oh, ourselves. Go there ahead. is one other thing too, with before we get to like removals of books and things, obviously like having conversations and talking with your children about things that you don't necessarily want them to read or what, what you don't want them to be exposed to and such. And if it's, you know, something that you don't, you know, want them to be checking out. But a lot of times the best way you can put limitations on what they are checking out from the library. So if you are like, you don't want them to be, I don't know, check. Like I had a student, my very first year, her parent did not want her checking out paranormal romance. And so I put a note in her file. She doesn't check out paranormal romance. And so anytime if she came to the counter with something like that, you know, I just reminded her, like, you can't check this out of the library. And so we didn't have to go through any of the like removal challenge, anything like that. That was just something that her and her mother had had a conversation about that. That was not something that she felt was appropriate for her. And that was it. So that is something too, that parents can discuss and talk to the libraries about as well. And that can be something that parents have the right to as well. That's really helpful. And I want to reinforce what you just said. Again, what Michelle and I focus on is is trying to help people understand that you teach your children what you understand to be correct principles. And then as you teach them correct principles, you have to allow them to have some level of of self-governance. Because you can't control people. You can eventually children leave and we have our agency to, to, to live our life. But I firmly believe that you, if you at least teach what we believe are correct principles, honesty is a correct principle, kindness, respect, those are correct principles. Well, eventually people find out that those are really good investments in their life. <laughs> so let's think about that way, audience, as we as we think about teaching our children and, and how what media they consume. And a, and a home can be very can be very important in terms of what type of content we consume. One of the things as a as someone who's been in literature and, and music and art my entire life and our family, one thing that we do is I've always wanted to have our children to be well read, well listened, and well viewed. And so I make we make sure that they have access to what I would call classic literature uh, that really explores the human experience. We want to make sure that they have listened to music that is beyond what is currently faddish or in, on trend. So they can go back to music, everything from the classical to Baroque to we go to New Age. I'm a, I'm a big fan of rock. So I want to make sure they listen to some of the greatest music ever recorded from the 50s, 60s, 70s, and even the 80s, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yep. like and then well-viewed. I want to expose them to foreign films. I want to have them ex- to see art films so that they know the difference, as I say, between a, an entertaining film and a great film those are very different things. So uh, you might consider that audience as you're, as you're looking to help educate, to have your children be culturally literate, which helps them as they grow up and enter the workforce and the community to be positive contributors to society. Okay, so let, let's go on. So we've, 
we've talked about what's happening in, in the United States. We've talked about how, how parents can be heavily involved. We've talked about how you are actually kind of in, caught in the middle of, of what you've defined as a cultural war. But I guess I might be confused. So we have this constitution, and within this constitution, we have a First Amendment, which it guarantees us the freedom of speech. And how I look at it, and retained within that is the freedom to read. So how is this culture war and the current legislation like we're seeing in Texas, how is that it be influenced by our constitution and, and First Amendment rights? Yeah, I mean, a lot of this, that's kind of the, the issue and especially like what ALA, the American Library Association is, like that's what they're fighting is saying that a lot of these book bans and challenges and restrictions is an, a First Amendment rights violation. And so it's, that's the war. <laughs> like when you restrict books, when you're removing them from the libraries and you're restricting students' access to them, so you're violating their First Amendment rights. That's the current legislative issue that is yeah. being explored. And eventually it will probably, and states will rule on that and we'll mm -hmm. see it goes to district courts and eventually to the Supreme Court and what will happen. It takes time. In yes. the meantime, we can follow district policy and our home policies and values and and navigate this successfully, regardless of what the legislature decides to do. Yeah, there was actually in June of this year, California issued some guidance from our our district attorney, just kind of like a gentle reminder to schools that you need to follow your policies and make sure you're not just removing books that you're scared of or disagree with because of book challenges and whatever, because it's a violation of students' First Amendment rights. And they were basically telling schools they, they were going to withhold funding if they found or the district attorney was going to come after schools if they were removing books without mm -hmm. due process. So it was just kind of like, hey, remember First Amendment. <laughs> so. Right. Very important. Okay. Yeah. So I, I think you brought up, you know, maybe our children are, are reading comics or manga or something. And, I, and it, this might be a category that you have a personal interest in. But I, yes. in our previous conversation, you talked about this. And so help us understand where does this fall? In the grand scheme of like what's being challenged. Yes. Um, so graphic novels are some of the most challenged books right now for the last year. It's well, so like racial topics and LGBTQ topics, but the most challenged, most banned book in the last year is a graphic novel. So and is there a historical precedent for comic censorship? Yeah. So, well, historically speaking, there was, there's something called the Comics Code Authority that came out of basically like comics were, were blamed for the, I'm going to get some of this stuff wrong. I listened to a whole podcast and now it's been leaking out my ears, but basically <laughs> the comics were blamed for juvenile delinquency. And there was a whole, um, there was a hearing in Congress and this guy wrote a book and he blamed comics and said it was Children's brains were going to be rotted because they were reading comics. And it was all terrible literature. And so the comics was kind of preemptive about it and said, okay, we will establish a code that rates ourselves. Like, don't get rid of us. Don't say that they were trying to like, trying to get ahead of Congress rating them and, and curtailing their publishing. And so they started the comics code and you had to, it, it stopped a lot of the, mature stuff from being published and then you got a little stamp on the front of your cover that said it was it said it was it was okay to be viewed by children and you know it was authorized by the comics code authority so it could be 
viewed for kids and stuff. And in the eighties, people started to buck the comics code and they were like, you know what, we're going to start publishing what we want. So DC started the Vertigo line of comics and they were like, well, this is adult comics. Do not give this to your children. Like these are like, so it was, there was like nudity in it and more mature storylines. People started to kind of freak out, but then they were like, these were the kind of comics that we wanted to publish and they got curtailed in the fifties. And so by the 2000s, Marvel and DC just like completely quit using the Comics Code Authority and they have their own rating systems now. And so at this point, nobody uses it anymore. They just have their own rating system that pretty much everyone uses. And they just put an age rating on the backside that says whether it's good for all ages, teen, teen plus, mature. And that's like, everyone's fine with it now. No one's like, oh my gosh, the comics code's gone. But yeah, there's still kind of this undercurrent that comics are terrible literature and they're going to rot your brain. And it kind of stems from that congressional hearing in the 50s. Interesting. I used to love comics. I loved (laughs) Spider-Man, Batman, (laughs) Superman. Those are, those, that was my era, right? And, and, uh, yeah, I love those. I also Mm -hmm. love really long content, right? I, I love reading the classics. It might, this is a romance, but I think I've read Pride and Prejudice now by Jane Austen five or six times. So, and I love that book, but I've also yeah. read many, 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 many others. Okay. So you've, you've shared a lot with us. Is there anything else that you feel like you would want our audience to know in terms of their role as a parent who's might be concerned about what their children are reading or a parent who's concerned about Uh, making sure the child has access to content? I think I just, I want to emphasize, I think that just how much work goes into selecting books. Like I mentioned earlier, you know, we don't, we don't have the time obviously to read every book that goes on the shelf, but we do as library staff, we do spend time and there's lots of resources that we have available to us to make sure that things are appropriate. So I review professionally for Booklist and School Library Journal, which are um, publications where other librarians like myself, like I read manga and then I review it. So those are the books that I read instead of reading the books that come to the library shelves. But somebody somewhere has read this book. So if this is a book, like I got a review copy earlier of this middle grade, this middle, like, I don't know what this is, but it's a middle grade story. And library so I of Shadows. The Library of Shadows. Here's the publisher. We'll so, see what to them. So this is by Harper Teen. Oh, so it's a teen. Sorry, it's not a middle grade. Um, so I could review this book because they sent me this review copy and they don't know that I only do manga. Sorry, Harper Teen. But I could review this and then like my review would be published for other libraries, right? So somebody somewhere has read this and given a review for other library staff. So I can trust their review as another library scientist that whatever, you know, they've pointed out, whether it's appropriate for teens, is it something they recommend that I I buy from my library? So those resources, like I actually started seeing them on Amazon. They're starting to pull some of those professional reviews and put them in a, in a section on Amazon. So So those are available for parents now too, that they could go and see is like, is this a professionally reviewed book? Or is any book out there like a professionally reviewed book? And it would point out like, is there anything that would be inappropriate for their person? So some of those resources that we're using to see if it's okay in the library would be something that 
parents or guardians could use as well. That's really helpful. And so as a book publisher, I'm very familiar with the the trade publications that we Mm -hmm. want to have our books reviewed. That's how libraries often find them, particularly collection development departments have a standard that these have to be reviewed. Mm. And I know that that, that those reviews can then show up on Amazon and that happens all because of something that's called metadata, which is the information that a publisher puts out in the marketplace. But I want to just perhaps end with something for our parents and those who are are guardians interested in, in making sure their children have content that's age appropriate or that is something that they would want them to read. Here's the deal. So if your child brings home books, I encourage you to read them. Read the books that your children are reading. Mm-hmm. And that allows you to have a conversation because maybe there's something in there that you found odd or troubling or concerning. Well, now you have an opportunity to talk about that with your child. And now that's a wonderful opportunity to, to learn what your child's thinking, you know, where your child's concerns are, where they're curious, and helps you help frame developing mind in a way that that is good for the long term, right? Discuss it. Talk about it. Let's not be judgmental. Let's not be shameful. Let's, let's just have a conversation. And I've had those conversations with many of my children about the content, films, or music they've listened to. And it's also really fun to get into the world of your children and experience what they're experiencing. So maybe that might be food for thought. Don't be afraid of what your children are are watching, seeing, or reading. Take advantage of the opportunity to then explore that with them and then have a discussion. You might say, I found this book that you're reading, and I think that there's some parts of this that are inappropriate. And this is why. Well, you have the prerogative to share that with them. And that's important. Okay. Well, we are so grateful that you would spend time with us, Sarah. But where can our guests find you online? Um, so I'm still active. I still call it Twitter. <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever call it. I don't know if I'll ever call it X, but Twitter. Direct, uh, but my handle is SM underscore wordsmith. So that's where I mostly post everything. And if you're lucky enough to have scored a blue sky invite code, I'm on blue sky at SM Wordsmith. <laughs> wonderful. Wonderful. I don't think I have a blue sky invite, so I'm I'm not included in the in the Oh, I can send you an invite code. <laughs> <laughs> well, as we conclude today's podcast, I'd like to thank Finlay for the support of bringing the podcast to your ears and your heart. We'd be thrilled if you subscribed to the podcast and left us a review. And when you're ready for that next amazing book adventure, we'd be honored if you chose a book from Finlay's. One step at a time, one book at a time, we can make the world a happier place.